to another church history presentation. Um, as promised, uh, I am going to cover the subject of the black church, the emergence of it. Uh, and of course, if we're gonna talk about these things, we also have to talk about the enslavement of people from Africa brought to this uh, part of the world uh, beginning really in the 1500s, um, not only by the English, but by the Dutch, the Portuguese, um, the French, and others. <clears throat> so uh, I don't know how much, uh, how many uh, segments we're going to do on this. Um, once we begin to describe the emergence of the black church in America, we then have two tracks that we're focusing on as we look at the development of the church in America. So now we have white churches and we have black churches and we have developments taking place in both streams. Um, and it's important to focus on both because coming into uh, the 20th century, black churches um, have a profound impact on the overall state of the church in America. And I'm happy to say it's a very good impact in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. So we know that the beginnings of European colonization in the New World occurred at a time in world history when nearly all nations, ethnic groups, tribes, empires, and so on, engaged in slavery, both enslaving and being enslaved. Uh, for example, did you know that there were a lot of white European slaves being held in various parts of Africa during this time period? And if you um, study history, you begin to find there's a lot more about slavery than perhaps what you've been taught in your basic history courses in high school and college. Um, but we know that slavery strongly correlates with the prevalence of war. The conquered often become slaves in the domains of the conquerors. But our focus here is on enslaved Africans kidnapped and brought to the British North American colonies and their exposure to and engagement with Christianity, both as it was taught and practiced by the enslavers and by the enslaved's own response to that Christianity that they were presented with. Today, given the conditions of our lives in the US and the way we live and think, it is very difficult to comprehend the world in which people were kidnapped, subjected to brutal inhuman conditions, and forced to live and work as captives their entire lives, mostly by people who considered themselves Christians. The analogs we have in these postmodern times is the existence of concentration camps in totalitarian regimes and the prison systems of various nations, including the prison system in the United States. We also know that modern forms of slavery exist, but most of these forms are part of the illegal underground economy and are not easily visible to us. Slavery in the New World existed because of the European demand for labor, especially for the labor-intensive plantation economies operated by Great Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, and the Dutch Republic. Again, keep in mind, 
All throughout this period, slaves are being brought not just to the North American continent, but they are imported into the West Indies or the Caribbean uh, to work in the sugar plantations. They are brought into uh, the various parts of South America where the Spanish and Portuguese have constructed large scale plantation um, uh, endeavors. So Africans, there's a huge uh, movement of Africans you know, this is not voluntary, this is all involuntary, but there's a huge movement of Africans into the New World along with Europeans. Slave ships of the Atlantic slave trade transported captives for slavery from Africa to the Americas. And I should note that many uh, people in the uh, North, or I should say the, the New England colonies were involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Indigenous people, or Native Americans, were also enslaved in the North American colonies, but on a smaller scale, and Native American slavery largely ended by the late 1700s. Plantation holders believed that enslaved Africans were stronger and could do more work than indigenous people. Also, keep in mind, indigenous uh, groups are getting wiped out by the diseases that Europeans are bringing with them. <clears throat> Another reason why the plantation owners and slaveholders uh, decided that enslaving Native Americans was probably not gonna be good long-term is the fact that what do people do when they are enslaved? What is the, the number one thing that they are thinking about day and night? Being free, escaping to freedom, leaving, fleeing, you know, whatever that looks like in their particular situation. And the plantation owners knew that the indigenous people knew the terrain they were enslaved in better than the owners themselves. You know, if you're, if you're Native American and you're trying to hide somewhere in the colony of Georgia, you, you know, because of your culture that you come from, I mean, this is your homeland. You are going to know exactly where to go to hide out. Um, so the plantation owners were like, well, we can't really rely, you know, we're going to have too many problems with slaves going missing if we enslave Native Americans. They assumed that Africans would not, you know, be brave enough to go out into the wilderness to flee their situation. And in fact, they were wrong about that, as it turned out. In the colonies, slave status for Africans became hereditary with the adoption and application of civil law into colonial law, which defined the status of children born in the colonies as determined by the legal status of the mother. And the Latin phrase is partus sequitur ventrum. And that essentially means children born to enslaved women were born enslaved, regardless of paternity. So a white man could cohabit with a black woman she could have a child, but if that black woman was enslaved, the child was enslaved. Children born to free women were free, regardless of ethnicity. So in other words, the child follows the mother's legal status. Obviously, uh, this, this is a law that certainly favors the plantation owners and slaveholders. It guarantees that they are going to have future generations of slaves 
and they can essentially make those slaves themselves and with, with impunity, and they do. By the time of the American Revolution, the European colonial powers had embedded chattel slavery for Africans and their descendants throughout the colonies, including the future United States. In chattel slavery, the enslaved person is legally rendered the personal property or chattel of the slave owner. The enslaver legally owns the enslaved for life and has the ability to determine all aspects of the enslaved's life, including buying and selling the enslaved at will. Some Christians in the American colonies attempted to justify the chattel enslavement system by comparing it with slavery as depicted in the Bible. But the mere presence of depictions of things in the Bible, along with lying, cheating, stealing, rape, murder, and war, of course, is not a justification for them. And uh, the slavery, as it's outlined, the, the laws regarding the enslaved in the Jewish laws that we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy describe a very different kind of slavery. The first recorded Africans in Virginia arrived in late August 1619. The White Lion, a privateer ship owned by Robert Rich, second Earl of Warwick, but flying a Dutch flag, docked at what is now Old Point Comfort, located in modern-day Hampton, Virginia, with approximately 20 Africans. They were captives from Angola and had been seized by the British crew from a Portuguese slave ship. To obtain the Africans, the Jamestown colony traded provisions with the ship. Some number of these individuals appear to have been treated like indentured servants since slave laws were not passed until later, in 1641 in Massachusetts and in 1661 in Virginia, um, which seems kind of late. Um, you know, as I was doing this study myself, I found it difficult to look at some of the historical, you know, tracing the history of these events because, and maybe this is just me, my mind likes to work in a pigeonhole system. I like to categorize. I like to put things in boxes. Well, this goes in this box and this goes in this. But, you know, this was a time period and, and the governments were such that it's not like today. So you could have parts of you, you, you could have a colony like Virginia, or rather Georgia, which was founded specifically to not include slaves, and then later it becomes a colony where there are a lot of slaves. So what happened? Did Georgia move from one box in my mind to the other? Well, yeah, um, and and I'm 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 having you know problems with that. It's like well, you started out free. And now you've got enslaved people, and you know, as time went on, a lot of enslaved people. Um, however, you know, just as things don't stay in their nice, neat little boxes, and the law doesn't really catch up with this, you know, all of the stuff that's going on. You know, there's a huge movement of people, and they're going wherever they want to go, or being forced to go certain places. And a lot of this stuff doesn't fit into nice, neat little boxes. Um, so from the beginning, in accordance with the custom of the Atlantic slave trade, most of this relatively small group in 1619 appear to have been treated as slaves 
with the words African or Negro becoming synonymous with slave. And then Virginia enacted laws um, concerning runaway slaves and Negroes in 1672. So it's taking a you know, slaves start being introduced in 1619 in Virginia, but decades later, the law is catching up with this activity and beginning to harden or solidify these, um, you know, these structures that people are creating, these social and legal structures, solidifying and hardening these structures into law. Racialization and racism became embedded socially, legally, and culturally as a result of the institution of chattel slavery of blacks only throughout the North American colonies. Some of Virginia's early Africans earned freedom by fulfilling a work contract or for converting to Christianity. And that becomes important. Um, at least one of these, uh, a man who is known, um, there's some historical record of, of what he did. Uh, his name was Anthony Johnson. He in turn acquired slaves or indentured servants for workers himself. And US historian Edmund Morgan, who's written a lot of stuff, and I'm sorry, I did not, prov I, I left out the footnote here and I apologize. I'll try to find that because we're gonna continue talking about these things. But Edmund Morgan says, this evidence suggests that racial attitudes were much more flexible in early 17th century Virginia than they would later become. And again, what is hard for us to imagine is that in the colonies, there are both enslaved blacks and free blacks, even in the South. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Well, it existed. Now, here is a map showing population percentages in the 13 British colonies in 1770. And you can see, I don't know. in those colonies. A 1625 census recorded 23 Africans in Virginia. In 1649, there were 300, and in 1690, there were 950. So, you know, the importation of enslaved persons is continuing and growing. Over the 17th and into the 18th centuries, legal distinctions between white indentured servants and Negroes widened and hardened into lifelong and inheritable chattel slavery for Africans and people of African descent. It should be remembered that many parts of the various colonies in this period from 1619 to 1776, uh, the year in which the American War for Independence from Britain began, 
These were sparsely settled by all demographic groups. The number of Christian churches, pastors, and active Christian presence within the general population was probably less than many have assumed. It has been said that America was formed as a Christian nation, but I think a better way to look at it might be how Christian was it? And along those lines, you know, what do you mean by when you say Christian? What does that really mean in this context? Was it assumed to be Christian only because there just wasn't any other significant religious presence? You know, there weren't Muslims. Uh, there were, you know, probably tiny numbers of Jews. Uh, and in many parts of the colonies, there wouldn't have been any really anybody who affiliated with any other religion besides Christianity. While some Europeans came to the New World for religious reasons, many, and I, I want to emphasize many did not, the emphasis for many was the establishment of economic systems that would bring the maximum amounts of raw materials and agricultural goods back to Europe for profit. You know, these were profit-making enterprises, and if they didn't make a profit, the colonists, you know, threw down their tools, jumped on a ship, and went back to the homeland. Uh, you know, if, if it wasn't making a profit, it wouldn't go, so to speak. Groups such as the Puritans, Quakers, and Anabaptists may have come to per escape persecution in the old world, but they still had to sustain themselves in the new. Sheer physical survival depended on establishing farms and plantations in a world with few tools and animals. The majority of the labor had to be provided by humans and it proved to be much easier for the colonial enterprises to have slaves as opposed to indentured servants. Indentured servants eventually would be freed and then begin to compete with plantation owners for land and resources as they established their own farms. The European discovery of tobacco, first brought by the Spanish to, to Europe in 1559, and the rapid adoption of smoking tobacco in Great Britain, meant that tobacco products would make up a sizable amount of the New World products shipped to Britain in the colonial period. Um, I, I, don't really have a lot of time to go into this, but the Puritans basically survived because they trapped beaver and they sent beaver pelts back to uh, Britain and Europe where hats made from beaver pelts were extremely popular and the demand from the aristocracy for these hats, you know, it just mushroomed overnight. And that's how the Puritans survived. In New England, you can't really establish a plantation the way you can in, in some place like Georgia or South Carolina. The, the land and the climate is completely different, and you can't really do that much profitable farming in New England. So uh, a lot of the colonists really relied upon trapping animals. Tobacco production was very labor-intensive and it had to be done on a large scale in order to be profitable. Other crops such as rice, indigo, and cotton required the same plantation system to produce as profitably as tobacco. Colonists in the British North American colonies modeled their plantations after the plantation systems used in the Caribbean and Latin America. 
and the demand for enslaved persons increased substantially through the 16 and 1700s, and the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, and English slavers accommodated the, this increase in, in demand. Again, profits. As Yale historian John W. Blassingame stated in his landmark 1979 work, The Slave Community, Plantation Life in the Antebellum South, revised and enlarged. And um, I brought this book. This is probably the first book written by an African-American historian to cover the topic of slavery in America from the slave's point of view. Um, there are a lot of slave narratives that we have available to us that various historians have, uh, you know, actual enslaved persons and descendants of slaves were interviewed uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So we have, and, and there were written accounts um, by enslaved persons of what their lives were like, what they did to try to escape slavery and gain freedom, and so on. Uh, but finally, in 1979, an African-American scholar produced this uh, groundbreaking work, um, and that's an understatement. Um, and I read this book in about three days. I couldn't put it down. It's full of footnotes, but it is very well-written, easy to read, and you know, if you want to skip the footnotes, you can, or you can read them, whatever. Um, but it's, it's an excellent, excellent book. I highly recommend it. One of the legacies Southern churches inherited from the Reformation was the duty to proselytize heathens, heretics, and infidels in order to establish hegemony or dominance over more souls than the Roman Catholic Church. Responding to the demands of English monarchs, the founders of Southern colonies recognized as one of their duties the propagation of the faith among the unsaved. But having justified the enslavement of blacks because they were infidels and heathens, colonial masters feared that Christianization would automatically lead to emancipation of the slaves. Consequently, colonial masters denied religious instruction to their bondsmen throughout the 18th century. In Virginia, the English bishops of the Anglican Church continued to advocate for slave owners to evangelize their slaves, but there was little positive response. English dissenting groups did not do much better. Such dissenting sects as the Quakers, Methodists, Baptists, and Lutherans actively evangelized the slaves with indifferent results until the Great Awakening of the 1740s. Now, when you hear the phrase Great Awakening, think Whitefield, we've talked about him, English pastor who started doing this itinerant ministry, and although he stayed within the Church of England, he was going to the New World, coming back to Britain, preaching in the open air, uh, had a very extemporaneous theatrical style of preaching. He is, essentially took Christianity outside the walls of the church and brought it to the common people, and he, among the many people he preached to, he preached to enslaved people in the New World. Now, many of the enslaved Africans had their own religions, which, like Christianity, contained creation stories, gods and spiritual beings, priests and priest healers, and well-developed ethical and moral systems. 
And some of the enslaved West Africans were Muslims, and some could read and write Arabic. And there are actually uh, handwritten manuscripts in Arabic left by some of these Islamic enslaved persons. Now, keep in mind, Islam had reached West Africa by about 1000 AD. Roman Catholicism had taken root in Central Africa by the 1500s, and some enslaved Africans were Catholic, and they were Catholic in Africa before they were enslaved and brought into, you know, some of them were brought into Catholic parts of the New World, um, and others were brought into the British North American colonies, which were primarily Protestant. So enslaved African Catholics who found themselves in the predominantly Protestant British American colonies would be considered as much targets for evangelism as non-Christian Africans. You know, the Protestants are like, we need to, you know, anybody who's Roman Catholic really should become Protestant, and if you're some other religion, you should become Protestant. African Catholics who found themselves in areas of the New World with French or Spanish colonization, such as Louisiana or Florida, found less religious pressure, although they were still often enslaved. And I want you to keep in mind that um, the influence of the Roman Catholic Church and the connection that uh, people in, from Africa, blacks in the New World, main, continued to maintain a connection in many, many parts of the New World, many geographic areas, um, and actually, and this is something we'll talk about when we get to the 20th century, but uh, the Roman Catholic Church is experiencing a renewal in terms of the number of black Americans who are affiliating with the Roman Catholic Church. And some of us might be like, that seems odd, but there are reasons for that, and we'll get to that later. But from the point of view of the white European colonists, there arises a fundamental problem with converting enslaved non-Protestant Africans to some form of Protestant Christianity. If they are converted and become Christians, must we free them? It was a long-standing tradition in British common law that Christians could not hold other Christians in bondage. A contradictory presumption behind enslavement was, it's okay to enslave non-Christians. You know, there's one school of thinking where it's like, well, you can't enslave a person who's a Christian, but anybody else is fair game. But a Christian has a responsibility to preach the gospel to and convert non-Christians, and especially so for people uh, who are Protestants, and especially for the dissenting English groups like the Methodists and the Baptists. Preaching the gospel and converting people to Christ is of paramount importance. This fundamental contradiction became a proverbial thorn in the side of white British American Protestants that intensified as time went on. Initially, the economic pressures of trying to maintain the plantation system overrode any religious persuasion. The colonies began to pass laws ensuring that conversion to Christianity did not automatically lead to manumission or release from slavery. At the same time, even during the colonial period, some religious groups began to advocate for the abolition of slavery. How did the contradiction work out in actual practice? 
And I am presenting here, um, I left off the quotes and I apologize. I am quoting from this book, you probably can't see it too well, but this is entitled The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, excellent book, written by Henry Louis Gates Jr., African-American scholar, and um, there's a companion movie, it's four hours long, I've only been able to watch about half of it, but it goes along with the book, and it takes you on a tour through various parts of the United States um, that are significant in the history of enslaved persons and their journey out of slavery into the church, um, into Christianity, and the other struggles that they encountered on the way. And I highly, highly recommend this book and this movie. Again, the movie's four hours long. You, you know, To try to watch it in one go is probably impossible. Anyway, uh, I have a quote here from Gates's work. In colonies such as Virginia and South Carolina, many Anglican missionaries passionately attempted, but failed, to persuade slaveholders of the merits of converting enslaved people with the full message of Christianity. Masters were determined to reinforce docility, illiteracy, and blind obedience in a rigid systematic effort to perpetuate the institution of slavery by breeding generations of human beings to believe that they were less than human, fit by nature or by God to be enslaved forever. So you have the church on the, you know, the church is officially saying one thing, and the slave owners are simply, we are not going to do this. Anglican missionaries, therefore, had to articulate a vision of Christianity that brought religion to enslaved men and women while at the same time placating their owners. So they centered it on race rather than religion. Missionaries sought to convince planters that Christianity would not foment rebellion. Instead, it would make the enslaved docile, hardworking, and easier to manage. This system of American Christianity has been called Christian slavery, and it gradually spread throughout the American South. And again, this has, it's not biblical slavery. Um, of course, this was a very popular uh, approach from the slaveholders' point of view. It totally justified the system that they wanted to maintain, and it kind of soothed their consciences when their consciences bothered them, if they did, that what they were doing was profoundly evil. The Christian slavery perspective embedded Christianity into the racist American plantation system. It solidified the notion that free men were free not because they were Christian, but because they were white. The converse was also true. Africans and their descendants were enslaved because they were black, Christian, or not. Thus, slaveholders began to accommodate what they believed were the religious needs of their slaves, minimal enough as they viewed them. From the slaveholders' perspective, only certain aspects of Christianity should be preached to the slaves. It was imperative that slaves not be taught to read and write, lest they learn to read the Bible for themselves and learn the true message of the gospel. So think about that for a minute. Think about back to John Wycliffe in England in the 1300s and the efforts of Wycliffe and Tyndale and the other English, uh, early English reformers trying to get 
Bibles translated into a language that the people could understand. But it was impossible to keep the dangerous parts of Holy Scripture from the enslaved, and the book of Exodus with Moses telling Pharaoh to let my people go, the accounts of the conquered Jews living in the lands of the Assyrian and Babylonian oppressors in the books of Daniel and Esther. This resonated with the enslaved. Many enslaved identified with Jesus and his passion. Here was a savior who knew what it was to be whipped almost to the point of death and who then was cruelly put to death by a vicious government and a bloodthirsty mob. To know that this man had suffered these things but was raised after three days in the grave gave great hope to the enslaved. Thus, the slaveholders were under constant pressure to maintain a facade of Christianity while maintaining the absolute contradiction of the chattel slave system. As noted in a previous talk, slaveholders would often provide a carefully controlled, limited amount of Christianity to their slaves by providing it within the confines of the plantation. Some built chapels or small churches on their plantations for the exclusive use of the enslaved and the itinerant ministers, again, predominantly Methodist and Baptist, that circulated throughout the, the colonies. Just as slaves had to take the master's last name, so they inherited his particular brand of Christianity. Slaves often had no liberty to attend other churches off the plantation, especially churches in other traditions. If the planter did not have a meeting house on the plantation, slaves would be directed to the closest church of the den denomination of the planter where he and his family worshiped. Those churches were run by the white planter class, but slaves would have to sit in separate segregated sections in the church. If slaves wished to participate in some meaningful way in the service, they had to have the permission of their masters. But despite the severe constraints the slaves encountered, many were converted to Christianity. Despite the laws in the colonies prohibiting slaves learning to read and write, some slaves did become literate and were able to read the scriptures for themselves. Some slaves were, in, were able to gain enough instruction to be able to preach. And I would also note that there were some who sitting in church would hear scripture being read and were memorizing these passages of scripture just by hearing them read. Uh, so, you know, the message of the gospel is, despite all these restrictions, uh, getting through uh, in some measure. Uh, and again, some of the enslaved actually preached to mixed groups in the southern churches all the while under the watchful eye of their masters. There was a church in Richmond, Virginia, and um, I tried to find the name of the church. Um, I read it about it years ago, and I wasn't able to source the material on the internet. Um, there was actually a church that it had free and enslaved blacks, it had whites, and the pastor of the church was actually an enslaved black man. And again, this defies our boxes, doesn't it? How, how, can, how, can, how can this be? Uh, 
you know, it, it was a very different world from the world we live in. But of course, the messages that these, uh, you know, black preachers are preaching it has to be on approved topics as well. So as long as, as blacks are within the confines of these white churches, they are restricted. But again, nonetheless, the gospel is getting through in some measure. Baptist and Methodist churches proved to be the most popular among the enslaved with a focus on preaching as opposed to the dull and dry Anglican ser sermons and services. The best part about the official church, in other words, the white churches, uh, was the opportunity for song, for singing. Music and song was an integral and is still an integral part of African life and communities and the enslaved learned the hymns of white Christians and made their own songs. It is perhaps impossible to overstate the importance and the role of music, both religious and non-religious, for the enslaved. Singing and making music was a way to lift up the spirit, assert personhood and human dignity in the face of overwhelming degradation, to express joy and to mourn, to have their own way of communicating that no one could take from them. For many enslaved, the real church they attended was their own. The gatherings they had in their own quarters or in remote rural locations underneath the stars, you know, you had to do this at night because you were working all day long, with no white slave owner or overseer to regulate them. And this is a quote from Gates's book, and he's quoting another scholar, uh, in the secrecy of the quarters, of the seclusion of the, they called them brush arbors, in other words, out in the woods, in a, you know, a little place, a clearing in the woods, surrounded by trees, and, and you know, you were hidden away. And, and they came to be known as hush harbors. The slaves made Christianity truly their own. The enslaved developed many ways to worship among themselves, that transcended the sanitized religious services they had to attend on Sundays. And this picture is... Now, again, the First Great Awakening has a profound impact, not just on white America, but on black America as well. So the First Great Awakening, or the evangelist, uh, evangelical revival, was a series of Christian revivals that swept through Britain and its 13 North American colonies in the 1730s and 1740s. And again, Whitefield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, other evangelistic preachers, the Baptist preachers who were riding circuits throughout the colonies, all of them played a great role in bringing this about. But this was essentially a large revival movement that permanently affected the Protestant denominations. Uh, it promoted individual piety and religious devotion and brought renewal throughout uh, the churches. And it also marked the emergence of Anglo-American or British-American evangelicalism as a trans-denominational 
movement within the Protestant churches. So it isn't just one denomination that is experiencing revival. The revival, because it's born of the Holy Spirit, it affects all the churches. Um, and it affected the Anglican churches as well to some degree. Evangelical preachers sought to include every person in conversion, regardless of gender, race, and status. And many of the revival meetings uh, blacks could freely come, and they could. That, that's when the uh, the whole thing of altar calls started. They could come to the altar. They could pray to receive Christ. They they could be baptized. Uh, the preachers were opening everything up uh, to anyone who would come to a revival meeting. Throughout the North American colonies, and especially in the South, the revival movement increased the number of African enslaved and free blacks who were exposed to and subsequently converted to Christianity. It also inspired the founding of new missionary societies, such as the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. The awakening led to a series of revivals throughout the colonies that emphasized, and you could, I mean, this is with us today, the basic evangelical understanding of salvation, the gospel, and what conversion means. Again, a quote from uh, Gates's book. Methodist and Baptist preachers held fiery revival meetings where both white and black, free and enslaved, could gather and participate in the energetic services. These revivalist gatherings were full of dramatic preaching, shouting, dancing, fainting, ecstatic trances, and baptism rituals that evoked the religious celebrations of the African ancestors of the enslaved. In other words, these Africans could relate to this. This is something they could, they could easily relate to. Conversion in these traditions didn't require lengthy formal instruction. You didn't have to read or write to profess faith in Christ. Only inner communion with the Holy Spirit. And by 1790, there were nearly 10,000 black Methodists and 20,000 black Baptists. Now, what you see here, uh, this is a, a little structure. It's in South Carolina. Um, it's got a sign up. It says Praise House. And this particular structure, it, it exists to this day. You can, you know, it's actually, I think it's on the site of um, historic, you know, there's a federal registry of historic places in the United States, and it might be on that. Um, you can see it's got electricity. They've got, a, they've got electric lines coming in, electric meter. The structure itself was built in 1900, but it is reminiscent of the praise houses that many of the enslaved began to build for themselves. And this is really important to understand. Uh, it, this wasn't a structure provided by the white slaveholder. This is something the enslaved built for themselves. This, again, this particular house, uh, praise house was built long, you know, some years after slavery has ended, but it served the same purpose. These underground Christian communities of enslaved black Americans could come to these praise houses. These were their churches. So you know, now they can move from being out of doors in the hush harbors and they can actually have their own place of worship. And these exist to this day. 
Before the, Af uh, the American War for Independence from Britain, the number of free blacks had grown, as well as the, the number of the enslaved, and both enslaved and free black converts to Christianity were being baptized and receiving some education in the faith. The number of both enslaved and free black pastors was growing as well. In the late 1700s, black churches, similar and for in form and structure to white churches, emerged. One of the first black churches in the American South was established by George Leal, an enslaved man and a Baptist preacher. And there's actually, you know, drawings of him that have survived, and this is one reproduced here. Leal came to Christ in 1773 at the age of 23 and was baptized by his white pastor, Matthew Moore. Sometime after Leal's conversion, his owner, Henry Sharp, who was a Baptist deacon, gave Liel his freedom so he could pursue God's call. So, truly an exceptional story. But there's a lot more. He preached for two years in the slave quarters of plantations surrounding Savannah, Georgia, and into South Carolina after his conversion. Because of his faithfulness and powerful preaching of the word, many surrendered their lives to Christ. Liel was ordained on May 20, 1775, becoming the first ordained African-American Baptist preacher in America. After his ordination, he planted the first African-American Baptist church in North America, a church still in existence today. And Today, it is called the First African Baptist Church. It's in Savannah, Georgia, and it has been a continuing congregation since Liel's founding. Now, during this time period, there were other black congregations being formed, emerging from their underground existence. The First Baptist Church in Williamsburg, Virginia, was a predominantly black congregation, as was the First Baptist Church in Petersburg, Virginia. A common goal for these churches was to construct real, recognizable church buildings out of brick rather than wood. This exemplified the desire for permanence and ownership on the part of these black congregations for their churches as symbols of validity, authority, and legitimacy within a white-dominated nation. And so we end here. Um, with a picture of the First African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia. Again, this is the congregation that Liel originally founded in the 1700s. I should also note that Liel later, uh, during the American War for Independence, because of the upheaval of the war, he ended up going to Jamaica and continuing to preach the gospel and established churches in, in Jamaica and had a, he converted hundreds in Jamaica. Now, th this church has been in continuous operation since its founding, and it claims to be the oldest continuous black church in North America. It is also on the net. It is a national historic landmark, and it is on the National Register of Historic Places in the United States. If you ever go to Savannah, Georgia, might be worth, they give tours, and it might be worth taking a tour. It's a beautiful building, and it has a website, and you can look at the website. It has pictures of the interior. It's beautiful. Um, so again, this is simply part one. There's much more to cover with the emergence of the black church in the United States. 
certainly the upheaval of the American war for independence from Britain and the Civil War in the 1860s is going to have a huge impact on certainly all aspects of American life, both for whites and blacks. So that's what I have for today. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>